Raise the flag. Light the cauldron. We, we declare, declare the, the game's, game's odyssey, odyssey open. Welcome to the Games Odyssey podcast, your home for stories of glory from Olympia to now. I'm Jonathan Jordan. And I'm Sarah Patton. We both love the Olympics and Paralympics, and we love history. And most of all, we love Olympic and Paralympic history, even when it's a bit ugly. Well, do we love it when it's ugly? (laughs) Maybe love is not the right word. Yeah, that might be a stretch. Um, Let's say we have a healthy fascination for history, even when it's ugly, because that's exactly the way to describe the first Olympic Games to be hosted in the United States. Ugly. St. Louis 1904 is still regarded by lots of people as one of the most infamous Olympiads, and that's saying something. But why is that? What went so wrong with the St. Louis Games? Did it have any redeeming qualities? And did America learn from what I like to call this hot mess in the U.S.? Well, we're going to get into all of that today on this episode. But first, there are a couple of business items I want to cover. First, Let's talk about our newsletter, or rather, Sarah, our non-newsletter. I'm a failure. Uh, Back on our first few episodes, I told people, hey, go sign up for the newsletter. But it's probably going to be a while before I actually get that thing going and get it out there. It will happen eventually. So thank you to those of you who have signed up for it. I see you. I appreciate you. It will come eventually. Just not sure when yet. So apologies for that. And you know what else we would appreciate? Some reviews. Um, In fact, we will actually read your reviews on an episode, uh, so long as it doesn't contain profanity and is in a language we speak. Honestly, I might even read it, even if it's in a language I don't speak. Um, And you know what? That part might be tough because we're native English speakers and both of us struggle with English at times. So, you know. We'll give it a shot. But uh, also, before we get into our main content, I want to give a big parental warning for this particular episode. And that's because with the St. Louis Games, we're going to have some discussions about racism. And obviously, that's very important to talk about with your kids. We're not denying that. I have had conversations with my oldest son about racism many, many times. But we also don't want to catch anyone off guard. And we understand that sometimes these discussions, even though they're important, they can also be triggering for people. And there are going to be some things we talk about in this episode that could be really difficult to hear for a lot of different people. Um, It's hard for me to talk about even some of these things. Um, And then the last kind of little business note before we get into our highlights is I want to tell you about another podcast that I used as part of the research for this episode, and that's American History Tellers. You may already know about it. They do a lot of really great storytelling with American history, but they did a four-episode season 
specifically on the St. Louis games. And I will have those episodes linked in our show notes. So I would encourage you to go check that out because there's going to be some things that we don't cover in this episode that they do cover in that series. And you should go listen to it. So yeah, before we get into the highlights, Sarah, I have a question for you, which is, have you ever been to St. Louis? You know, I haven't. But Hmm. what a surprise that I have a story about St. Louis. So um, my husband is from Kansas. And if you know anything about Kansas, they hate Missouri. Sometimes they hate Texas too, (laughs) knowing from my experience. But shout out to the fam. Still love y'all. Kansans hate Missouri. Missouris do not love Kansans. There's a lot of history there. Mm, Um, So one of the things that I like to do to push buttons is to remind people in Kansas that Missouri held the first games that were held in the United States. Because everybody forgets (laughs) that St. Louis hosted the Olympic Games. Now, that being said... Family members, if you're listening to this episode, I understand that I'm coming clean with um, divulging some of the, as you called it, the hot mess that was the Olympics. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if we're gonna brag on that. Um, yeah, not so, <laughs> so much. Yeah, so I know we have a few family members that will probably <laughs> listen to this, and um, I'm gonna have to bite my years of bragging. Um, so yeah, I've not been to St. Louis. Uh, okay. What about what about you? So here's the thing: I have been through St. Louis. I've never actually done anything there. I've never really visited. Uh, one time on a um, business trip in a previous job, I had to stay the night uh, right outside of St. Louis. Actually, I think it was technically within the city limits, but but literally, I drove to the hotel, stayed there that night, and left six in the morning. So didn't see any of the city. And then on my way back through, uh, I didn't stay in the city again, but I had to pass through it. And so I did pass by the arch and drove through the city. I think I had to stop and get gas there, but that's my St. Louis experience. So I haven't actually spent any real time there. I have not seen any of the Olympic sites there because we'll talk about it in a minute, but you can still go see some of the Olympic venues that were used. So yeah, I haven't really enjoyed the city, I suppose, but I have technically stepped foot on St. Louis grounds multiple times between those two different trips. Yeah. So no, I mean, so yeah. it, it, count, it counts. And you know, not yeah. that this is really relevant to the episode, but as a Texas Rangers fan, I'm still a little bit salty about yeah. St. Louis. And We're not going to the go World, there. And the World Series several years ago. So, yeah. you know, you know, one pitch away. Yeah, that that one still stings <laughs> for me as well. So. so, yeah, St. Louis has some interesting sports feelings for us. So, Sarah, let's go ahead and give everyone the highlights and let them know, just kind of prep everyone for the ride they're about to go on with us. <laughs> All right. The 1904 St. Louis Games ran from July 1st to November 23rd and were the first Olympic Games to be hosted in the U.S. The U.S. has hosted eight times total, counting both summer and winter games. Um, So, yeah, several several months long, uh, which not unusual for back then. Um, Right. 
1904 Games were the first Olympic Games to standardize gold, silver, and bronze medals for first, second, and third for all events instead of handing out silver cups, silver trophies, or 50-pound bronze statues of horses and such. We'll make sure to post pictures of the medals. Um, And then first, these were the first Olympic Games known to include a case of using... Performance enhancing substances. <laughs> Not sure if we're going to call that a highlight per se, but here we are with starting an unfortunate Olympic tradition. Yeah. And then finally, these were the first Olympic Games to be planned for one city and then moved to a different city, which there's just a bit of drama to unpack there. Yeah. And you already alluded to the rivalries that we sometimes have in different regions here in the United States, Uh, Kansas folk not liking Missouri folk. (laughs) Obviously, with us being in the Dallas area, we have strong feelings about Houston, and Houston has strong feelings (laughs) about Dallas. That's okay. We love you, Houston people. We just don't love your city. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, there's that. But... Yeah, that's just kind of an American tradition. I don't know if that's true in, in other countries necessarily, but but it, we're definitely going to see it on ugly display here. And what's crazy is we're also going to see multiple occasions come up in the history of the Olympic Games where the Games have to be moved from the city that originally won the bid to another location. This was actually the first Olympic Games that had multiple bidders, which is actually kind of cool, because with only having the Athens Games and then the Paris Games, there was no need for (laughs) the cities to really bid. And even though it was a young movement, the fact that other cities wanted to take part, hopefully that shows we're starting to get some traction despite the difficulties. So in contention were the cities of Berlin, Stockholm, Copenhagen, and London was also a serious contender. But Coubertin really wanted America to host, especially after the failure of the 1900 Games in his home city of Paris. He felt that the success of the Games as an international festival meant that it needed to take place in the Americas especially since the games had actually been a moderate hit with at least American athletes so far at this point. So you might recall from our episode about the revival of the Olympic Games that back in 1893, Coubertin visited the World's Fair when it was held in Chicago. And he visited some local sports clubs in the area, checked out what they were doing, loved the American version of amateur athletics. So while there were other American cities considered, like New York and even Philadelphia were in the discussion, in some ways, those actually would have made more sense because of their location on the East Coast. But it was thought that Chicago would be better suited because of its more central location. You could attract American athletes from both coasts and theoretically international travelers could catch a train from either coast. The key word here is theoretically because they didn't think about the fact that that was a 1,000 mile train ride from either coast. We're not a tiny country over here. (laughs) Exactly. So (laughs) 
again, theoretically on paper, seemed like a good idea. So in 1901, the IOC officially awarded the games to the city of Chicago. And even though the Olympics were still not widely known, the announcement seemed to actually generate some level of excitement in the city. In fact, there was even a report that I found that in Hyde Park, near the University of Chicago, there were students who even raised the bonfire to celebrate the announcement that the games were coming there to their town. But, as you might have noticed from our discussion already and from the episode title, obviously the games did not happen in Chicago, and they've never happened in Chicago. So, what happened? (laughs) Some good old American-style drama. That's what happened. It's like a reality (laughs) show, really. Backstabbing, deception, backroom deals, you name it, we got it. In the early 1900s, St. Louis and Chicago were rival cities. St. Louis was known as the Gateway to the West, and thanks to the railroads, it had grown to become the fourth largest city in the U.S. at the time, which that's pretty impressive to me because I I feel like I don't think of St. Louis as a huge city these days. It's Um, not. (laughs) 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 Sorry, St. Louis. Sorry, St. Louis, but... We're just a little bitter. You've lost a few people over the years. (laughs) Um, And speaking of losing people, St. Louis was losing people and businesses to Chicago. Mm. And it had lost out on the previous bid for the World's Fair to Chicago back in 1893 when Coubertin had visited. So see, it's all coming full circle. Yeah. So now we have to introduce a guy named David Francis a St. Louis native who had been its mayor and also had been the governor of Missouri. So he was just a little bit influential. Through his political connections, he was able to talk Congress into giving St. Louis $5 million to have their own World's Fair in 1903, specifically to mark the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase. All right. So we're going to push pause there for a second because... Since we do have listeners in other countries, they might not know what the Louisiana Purchase is. Okay, let's be honest. A lot of American listeners have forgotten what the Louisiana Purchase was, so we all could use a refresher. Okay, the Louisiana Purchase was a deal that U.S. President Thomas Jefferson, you may have heard of him if you've seen Hamilton, um, he made And now a deal. all the songs are stuck in my head, thank you, uh, yes. Manuel. Yeah, sorry about that. I I mean, you could have much worse things stuck in your head. Let's be real. Um, So, yeah. So, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the U.S., he made a deal with another guy that you may have heard of over in France, uh, just this uh, guy named Napoleon Bonaparte. And Napoleon had really kind of lost interest in France's New World efforts because he was busy with other things like having his painting done and trying to take over Europe, you know, just his average Tuesday. In all, Jefferson ended up purchasing from France nearly 830,000 square miles of land. That's over 2 million square kilometers at the bargain price of, drumroll, three cents per acre. So, yeah, it pretty much doubled the size of the United States at the time. And in other words, you could say this was the best real estate deal ever made. 
So yeah, that is the Louisiana Purchase. And that's why David Francis was going to Congress to say, hey, we should commemorate this because it's been a hundred years since all this happened. Anyway. <laughs> so all that went down in 1803. And since St. Louis is located right on the eastern edge of the Louisiana Purchase, and since obviously there was nothing good on TV, <laughs> Congress was like, yeah, why not? Would you like your $5 million delivered in giant money bags or would a check be okay? Then somehow or another, David Francis, who was the president of the committee in charge of organizing the World's Fair slash Louisiana Purchase Centennial, heard about <laughs> the Olympics and really wanted it to come to St. Louis. I mean, who wouldn't want the Olympics, right? Yeah, but my question is, do you think he <laughs> only wanted the games just because Chicago got it? Like, was this a what? keeping up with the Joneses thing? <laughs> Yeah. What? After only two modern Olympic games? <laughs> like, oh man. Regardless of his true motives, in 1902, the building projects for the World's Fair were running behind schedule. <laughs> Go figure. And Francis <laughs> used this as an excuse to justify pushing the World's Fair back a year to 1904, even though it would no longer be the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase, which is why he had gotten the money in the first place. <laughs> but it didn't seem like that many people cared about the mathematical discrepancy. Yeah, I, I get that. Math is hard. Not my favorite subject either. So No, no, yeah. same. This is like we're history <laughs> nerds. We don't do math. <laughs> uh, Francis also used this time to travel to Europe to try to drum up interest in the World's Fair and to pitch the possibility of St. Louis as a host city for the Olympics making the argument that since they should just move the games to St. Louis and combine them with the World's Fair like they had done in Paris. But we all mm. know how that turned out. So the IOC is like, yeah, no, bro, we're good. <laughs> and I can't blame them for that. Yeah. And we love a good Coubertin quote here on, the, on this show. The man was not afraid to tell you exactly what was on his mind. And when he had the chance to give his opinion of St. Louis, he described it as a city with no beauty and no originality. Again, people in St. Louis, his words, not ours, okay? Uh, man, can you imagine what Coubertin would have done with a Yelp review? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> or Twitter? <laughs> or Oh my, yeah, yeah. He would have loved Twitter. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> well, since the IOC was not willing to hand over the games with a smile, Francis realized that it was time to, well, play a little dirty. What? A politician play dirty? Never. Not in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to our listeners outside the U.S., uh, I'm sure that... We, we give you some fun moments. Francis went to go talk to a buddy of his named James Sullivan, who was one of the founders of the AAU, the American Athletic Union. At the time, the AAU was the largest governing body for amateur sports in the United States. They oversaw pretty much every sport you could think of across the country. Mm. Sullivan was a big muscular guy and had been a track star before going into sports journalism, refereeing. And then working as an advertising representative for a little sports company called Spalding. Maybe you've heard of them. Maybe. Yeah. 
Uh, so now it just so happens that James Sullivan himself had a beef with the IOC. He had asked them to become a member back in 1900, and they turned him down. Mm. Some report that Sullivan was pretty upset about their refusal and that he particularly found Coubertin to be snooty and distasteful. <laughs> Probably he was just jealous of Coubertin's mustache. I mean, who isn't? <laughs> Yeah, we talk about his mustache a lot on this show. <laughs> so Francis approached Sullivan with an idea. What if the AAU hosted their national championships for all of their sports in St. Louis during the World's Fair? Unfortunately, this would mean that none of the American athletes would be available to go to Chicago for the Olympics. Oh, yeah, unfortunately. I'm sure that was just a, a mild oversight on their part. Mm -hmm. No way that that was intentional. Um, <laughs> now, we'll get to this in a little bit, but Sullivan in general was not a great guy. He was known to be domineering of others, a racist, a misogynist. Basically, he would have won the gold medal in sleazebaggery. So, needless to say, I'm sure he loved this idea from Francis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. He was a big fan of this idea because, obviously, this was a huge problem for the IOC and his arch nemesis, Coubertin. I mean, what's the point of the Olympics being hosted in the U.S. if no U.S. athletes show up? It's mm. like throwing a birthday party and the birthday party person doesn't even show up. I think I've had that birthday party. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it was on purpose. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, so the head of Chicago's Olympic planning committee was a guy by the name of Henry Ferber. When he heard about David Francis's plan with the AAU, he wrote to Coubertin about it. But for some reason, Coubertin decided to stay out of it and was uncharacteristically silent on the matter. Mm. So do you think Coubertin just didn't want to be a part of the American drama? What do you think was going on in his head? You know, I don't think it was that he didn't want to be part of the drama. I don't, I wonder, there's part of me that wonders if after 1900 in Paris kind of being all over the place, if he was like, huh, I wonder, can they mess this up worse? And then <laughs> and then my city doesn't look so bad. Like, that's my conspiracy theory here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, what, I think there's a what good... What are your thoughts? I, I mean, I have several thoughts. I mean, on one hand, you have to think about the distance, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. France is a long ways from the U.S. And so there's a practical side of me that says he was silent and the IOC wasn't as involved in this drama simply because they were so far away that maybe they didn't feel like they could do something. But speculating further, I think that part of the IOC silence was probably the fact that this whole scenario put them in a lose-lose situation. Because, I mean, think about it. On one hand, if they keep the games in Chicago, they have no American participation, which would be really embarrassing for them. Right especially after fighting so hard to have the Olympics in America when there were other European cities actually bidding for it. Um, on the other hand, 
it would be embarrassing to transfer the games to St. Louis after they had already brushed off David Francis. Uh, not to mention they really wanted to avoid what you were just saying, the mistake of 1900 and pairing the Olympics with the World's Fair. They knew that that did not work and it probably would not work again. So, yeah, th there was absolutely no good way out of this situation for them. And so I, I think that's maybe the real reason behind their silence here. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, that's a lot more logical reason of being like, mm. I'm going to say face for Paris than my little conspiracy yeah. theory. But like, just, <laughs> I mean, also just picture Cooper Tom with his mustache being like, y'all just go, y'all figure this out. Just don't screw this up too much. <laughs> yeah. Now it's hard to know how much of the drama was real or how much was being played up by the press because the media loved the story of backstabbing. You don't mm. say the media likes to stir the pot. Which, yeah. strangely, this was actually kind of a good thing for getting people to talk about the Olympics. Because no press is bad press, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Which, I mean, I, I agree with that. But, eh, well, sure, actually, kind of. I, I agree with that as long as it's not about me. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> to an extent. To an extent. Um, so it's reported that as a last-ditch effort... Ferber wrote to Coubertin and suggested that they move the games to 1905, which, ugh, that mm -hmm. just sounds terrible to me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't like God numbers, so that's a beautiful thing about the Olympics. Anyway. Well, except for 2021. No, it's still called 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the medals, dang it. <laughs> um, <laughs> things that really don't matter, but... <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So the pitch to move into 1905. After all, yeah. Chicago was, shocker, behind on things, and this would allow them the chance to catch up and avoid the whole AAU situation. But this was a hard pass for the IOC. They were adamant to keep the structure of the Olympiad being every four years, which I clearly mm. support. The IOC's refusal to move the games to 1905 essentially forced Chicago to relinquish the games to St. Louis. Ferber reached out to Francis about moving the games there, which obviously he agreed to, and then Ferber wrote to the IOC about it. In February of 1903, the IOC sent back a cablegram to Ferber's office that simply stated, Transfer accepted. <laughs> but it was obviously begrudging acceptance because they chose to completely step out of the picture, giving full control of the mm. planning to the AAU. And Coubertin decided he would not attend the games. Yeah, this was kind of like them wiping their hands of it, right? Because in 1900, they didn't really want to give up control of the planning. They just kind of had to. This was a situation where they said, you know what? If you want the game so bad, they're yours. Go ahead, AAU. Do your best. And in true Coubertin fashion, he later wrote about this. And again, we're sorry, St. Louis. Not our words, Coubertin's words. He wrote, I had a sort of presentment that the Olympiad would match the mediocrity of the town. Again, not a man to mince words, that Pierre. <laughs> All right, so we need to talk about James Sullivan. So we already talked about him a little bit here about 
being involved with the AAU, being one of the founders. And as much as I hate to do it, we've got to talk a little bit more about him because with the IOC deciding to distance themselves from St. Louis Games, that meant he would become the chief organizer for the Olympic Games. I'm sure he thought that this was his chance to show the IOC how stupid they'd been for rejecting him when he wanted to become a member. And one good thing about this was that unlike the 1900 games, the St. Louis games weren't going to be ignored. In fact, Sullivan wanted to raise the visibility of the Olympics. He wanted to get people talking about the games because then he would get more attention for it too. So with his ties to the sports company Spalding, he was particularly interested in the business possibilities. And for better or worse, he was actually a pioneer in the idea of sports sponsorship and the money that could be generated by pairing business and athletics together. So, you know, that's a whole industry now. And he was one of the pioneers of that thinking. Uh, Despite this, James Sullivan and his Olympic Games there in St. Louis, they'd still run into some of the same problems that we saw happen in 1900. There was going to be confusion about which events were officially Olympic events, which ones were just for the AAU championships, and which ones were actually both. But even the medals themselves, when you look at them, and I'm sure we have a picture of that we'll put up, but the medals bear the word Olympiad and also Universal Exposition on them. So that's confusing as well. Um, oh, also... It's so, so interesting. I want to see one of those medals yeah. up close. So, you know, if you're listening yeah. to this and somehow have a medal, please loan it out to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did find some up close pictures online, so I'm sure... No, I want to hold it in my hands. Oh, hold it in your hand. Okay, I missed that. I, I get that. Okay. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Tell you what, while we're on the subject of metal, um, metal, medals. Yeah, th- this is a metal podcast now. We're just going to start blaring really loud music. <laughs> so these medals, the way they were designed was they were attached to a really short um, colored ribbon with a pen to affix to the athlete's chest. Kind of like you would see done with a military medal or, oh, tell you what, wait a second. I know this is a podcast and people are listening and not seeing, but we do put this up on YouTube as well. So if you're watching the video version, it it would have looked more like this type of medal where you've got the short ribbon, you got the pin on the back. So this is the type of shape that they would have had for the 1904 games. And actually even some of the games that happened um, afterwards. So uh, let's get back to James Sullivan. So he decided that athletes would need to pay a $2 entry fee and then an additional 50 cents for each event, which they're already amateurs. They're not making money off of this. And now you're wanting them to pay for an event that, by the way, you're going to be selling tickets to. So you're you're making money off of them paying money to be there. Anyway, that's a whole ethical thing. Uh, So to put this into today's dollars, it's the equivalent of them paying $65 just to enter and then $16 for each event that they wanted to enter. So think about the track and field athletes. If they wanted to do multiple running events, well, they're paying 16 bucks for each one of those. I mean, that that starts to really add up for these amateur athletes at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, 
I'm sure we could have a, a whole rant on that, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that move. I mean, is that, am I being unfair? Is it not that big of a deal to ask athletes to pay an entry fee? What do you think? I mm-hmm. hate this because they were not getting these big sponsorships. It was impossible. It was against the rules. And we know Sullivan yeah. wasn't going to budge on that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I I mean, knowing that he's a business guy, it's a money grab. That's what I see it as. And I also, this is pure speculation on my end, but I wonder about if that was a way to weed out people that maybe came from lower socioeconomic <laughs> yeah. um, backgrounds and thinking yep. about the history of the United States and um, thinking yep. about the statistics that if you're a white person, you probably are a lot more likely to be able to get there and compete than people yeah. of color. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think that's a completely valid point because it's one thing to ask people to pay for their own equipment and pay sure. for travel. Like that's that's just kind of to be expected um, sure. even today. But to say, if you want to compete, you need to do this and you have to pay for every single event. It's just, uh, I don't know. It just kind of makes me sick. Knowing, um, again, knowing what we know about Sullivan, we don't like it. So who was at the 1904 games? Well, not many people, (laughs) at least not many non-Americans. Get ready for this. This is going to be a wild ride. Um, I'm ready. Which is kind of the theme (laughs) of St. Louis. Um, In total, there were only 12 countries represented and only 651 athletes. But... 526 of these were all there representing the United States. <laughs> Canada made its official debut at the Olympics, which is kind of cool. Um, and it makes sense since they're closer. Sending yep. 56 athletes, making it the second largest team, which means that only 62 athletes came from outside North America. That's a big deal. Um, uh, that's, so, a, that's a little deal, actually. That's not well, a big yeah. deal. That's a, <laughs> that's a minuscule deal. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's fair. But the, the size difference is a big deal. Um, it is. Uh, I know. Yeah. So, just to, so, yeah, I feel like I want to say that again. Um, yeah, 651 athletes, 526 representing the United States, 56 to Canada. All right, so here's the breakdown of the non North Americans. Uh, Australia had three. Austria had two athletes. Cuba had three. France had one. Germany had 22. Great Britain had six. Greece had 14, 10 of whom were sent to compete in the marathon. Hungary had four. South Africa had eight. And South Africa was also making its debut. So Mm. that's that's exciting. Um, And Switzerland had two. Like the other early games, there's some contention about these numbers. For example, researchers in Norway discovered that the two Norwegian-American wrestlers, Charles Eriksson and Bernhoff Hansen, didn't become American citizens until 1905. In fact, Norway's Olympic Committee filed a formal application in 2013 for the IOC to change the wrestlers' nationality in the official medal database. I mean, that's recent. That is yeah. only nine years ago that they're like, wait a second. That's over. <laughs> this isn't a- right. <laughs> that, is, that is over a hundred years. 
after they competed. And I mean, I'm just going to say that, you know, good on Norway for being like, you know what? Let's get these guys on the right team. I mean, yeah, we want credit. (laughs) We want credit. Um, which, which, by the way, I don't have this in the notes either, but the one guy from France, when I was doing the research, I found out that uh, he was there for the marathon, and he was also attributed to the U.S. for a long time, because when he registered, he didn't do something correctly, and technically France didn't officially send a team, so the organizers were like, yeah, I don't know what we can do for you, bro. You can't run for France, but you can run for us if you want to. And he was like, yeah, okay, whatever. So they documented him as Team USA, even though he was <laughs> from France. And so, again, it was one of those things that was discovered later on. So um, so on that note, though, uh, there's several reasons for the lack of non-North American participation. Uh, for one thing, it was still really expensive for people to travel to the U.S., something that the IOC didn't think about. Um, they didn't have Expedia or Travelocity, obviously. <laughs> so the sheer of course, cost of, course. of, yeah, yeah, I mean, getting on a boat and crossing the Atlantic or the Pacific, whichever direction you're coming from, that sheer cost just kept many of the European athletes in particular at home. They just couldn't justify it. War had actually just broken out between Russia and Japan, making travel across the Pacific unsafe. And both Great Britain and France refused to officially send a team. So here's why he had to enter just kind of on his own. But they refused to officially send a team because they were standing in solidarity with Japan. So... Yeah. So even though there were some British athletes there, um, a lot of them were actually Irish. Um, In fact, some of them also were attributed to the U.S. because they were like, well, we'd rather represent the U.S. because we don't really like the fact that we're called British because we're Irish people. Right. You know, like there was that Mm -hmm. whole thing happening as well. So. Um, so yeah, that kind of explains why not many international people were there. Uh, The Olympic events were. Uh, primarily hosted there on the grounds of Washington University in St. Louis. The opening ceremony and many of the events were held at Francis Field, uh, which was named for David Francis. At least that's what it's known as now, obviously not back then. Uh, But it was built for the World's Fair, and it holds the distinction of being the oldest Olympic stadium that's still in active use today. Uh, And it's a national historic landmark. Uh, When it was built in 1904, it could hold 19,000 spectators. And then when it was renovated in 1984, its capacity was changed to 3,300, uh, oh. which is usually the opposite Bye. of what happens when you yeah. <laughs> renovate a stadium. <laughs> but anyway, the organizers invited President Teddy Roosevelt to attend the opening ceremony, but he declined because being 1904, it was an election year, and he felt like it would be inappropriate for him to make an appearance like that. Uh, Not to get political, but I feel like that's quite a contrast to what we would see the average politician doing today. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I feel like that is a bipartisan political observation. That's also just Teddy Roosevelt. Who, I mean, he he was just in a class of his own in the way that he viewed things. And so for him to say, 
yeah, I don't really think it's fair for me to go to this event. Like he ethically didn't feel good about it. So he, he passed. Um, but during the opening ceremony, there was a parade of a whopping 75 athletes where it was officially opened by David Francis instead, since the president decided not to show up. And then after that, after the little tiny parade of 75 athletes, the spectators were able to stick around the stadium to watch the Missouri State track meet, not the Olympic. And there's there's not much I can say about that. <laughs> Missouri, come on. What a letdown. Like, could you imagine? Okay, so let's fast forward. Let's say it's 2028. And could you imagine going to Los Angeles for the Olympic Games? And you go into the stadium and you sit down excited for the opening ceremony. And instead, a bunch of high schoolers run out <laughs> onto the track. <laughs> I, I mean, here's the thing. I would enjoy going to a high school track meet, um, like sure. the state track meet. Um, yeah. You know, there's some great athletes out there that, you know, have a bright future. Absolutely. But, Whenever I'm going to the Olympics, that's <laughs> not what I expect. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we're not going to run through all of the events, but we would, do want to take a second to highlight the new events that were added to the program in St. Louis, along with some unusual events. First, there was the addition of the decathlon to the athletics program. At that time, it was called the all-around event not to be confused with gymnastics, mm -hmm. and was a bit different than today's decathlon. The 10 events included were the 100-yard dash, shot put, high jump, an 880-yard walk, hammer throw, pole vault, 120-yard hurdles, 56-pound weight throw, because 57 pounds is totally unreasonable, long <laughs> jump, and a one-mile run. Ellery Clark, who you might remember from our episode about the 1896 games, actually competed in the decathlon, but he had to drop out after five events due to catching bronchitis. That's sad. Still That'll because do it. Of, yeah. Still because of the <laughs> scoring system they used, he still managed to place six. So, I mean, you know, it's not terrible for having to drop out. That's um, not bad for doing only half of an event to still. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I wouldn't six. be I wouldn't be upset about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, boxing also made its modern Olympic debut, and it's been in every summer games, with the exception of 1912 Stockholm, because boxing was illegal in Sweden at the time. And then diving also made its debut as part of the swimming program, along with a very strange swimming event that only featured this one time called Plunge for Distance. Sounds so, totally normal. Yeah, well, it sounds like something I have to do to my son's uh, toilet every so often, um, plunging for distance. But uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so here's how it worked. The five competitors, yep. Whopping five competitors, um, and I'm calling them that because I can't, in good conscience, call them athletes. <laughs> but they lined <laughs> up at the side of the pool, and they dove in. Uh, but the rules were that once they made contact with the water, they weren't allowed to do any other movement that could propel them forward. So can't move your arms, can't move your legs, 
the winner was judged as whoever floated the furthest distance from the start point. I can't get through this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, the winner <laughs> was judged as the one who floated the furthest from the start point within 60 seconds or before that if you know they had to come up to air, for air to breathe. Um, the quote-unquote Winner of this event was William Dickey with a plunge distance of 19.2 meters. That's about 63 feet. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons that this event was cut, besides the fact that it's completely pointless, is that the competitors were all out of shape men that one newspaper described as mere mountains of fat who fall in the water. <laughs> Like, I'm determined that we are going to find this article so that we can oh post it online. Gosh. That's uh, my mission. That That's some high-quality journalism right there. <laughs> Just mere mountains of fat who fall in the water. Oh, that's exactly what you want to see on your box of Wheaties in the morning. <laughs> and um, I know this may be... A controversial opinion, but even so, I'd still take this event over esports. <laughs> I agree. Just my opinion. Anyway, yeah, watch um, like five years from now, we're going to be talking about esports at the Olympics or something. Oh. Yeah, anyway. Probably so. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll save that for anyway. the future. Yeah. And then um, another strange event that featured at the St. Louis Games was club swinging. Um, not going swinging in the club. Okay. Diff different thing. Um, a gymnast from Ohio named Edward Hennig won the gold medal on that event. He also won gold in horizontal bars in the gymnastics competition. So he, he was an actual athlete. He didn't just, you know, swing stuff around. Uh, he was considered one of the most successful club swingers. He competed for 47 years in the sport. That's a heck of a long time. And uh, club swinging would only feature one other time at the 1932 Los Angeles Games. So apparently it used to be popular here. I've never seen it done. But ha have you ever heard of club swinging before? So I've not. But I was going to ask you, do you know, is yeah. this relevant at all to like the rhythmic gymnasts that do clubs i did not do any research in that uh what i did read was that club swinging actually originated in india so it was one of those things that like india to england england to america like that was kind of the evolution of how the sport got popular in america but I didn't even make the rhythmic gymnastics connection but that totally makes sense that maybe that's how it's kind of survived and lived on. Oh yeah, lacrosse. Lacrosse made its debut at the Olympics. Um, it would only feature in the 1904 and the 1908 games, so it was short-lived as far as Olympic events go. Uh, part of this was because in St. Louis, there were only three teams that were in the competition. Uh, one from the U.S. and two from Canada, which... Fun fact, one of the Canadian teams was completely made up of Mohawk players, which, Sarah, you know, in our practice episode uh, about the history of sports, we talked about how lacrosse mm -hmm. was developed from the Native American game of stickball. So mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it makes sense why there was a whole team made of Mohawk people. Yeah. It was really cool. Uh, Roke 
also made its one and only appearance at the Olympic Games. If you've never heard of Rogue, like me, <laughs> it's an American version of croquet, uh, but it's played on a smooth surface instead of in the grass. It's really popular with... Anyway, back to you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken. Weightlifting returned to the program after being cut from 1900, and this time included a dumbbell event. Wrestling added a freestyle category for the first time. Water polo also made its debut, though there's some debate of whether it was an official event or a demonstration event, but the mm. IOC now recognizes it as official. So good job, water polo. Speaking of demonstration sports, the 1904 games also featured American staples like the new game at the time of basketball, <laughs> uh, American football, baseball, and hunting. Probably better that we just see um, ski shooting and such now. Yep, probably so. <laughs> uh, there were also a couple of unofficial demonstration sports like Gaelic football and women's boxing. So, yeah. unfortunately, the women were not competing in boxing officially, but right. it, it's great to see that women's boxing was starting to kind of show up. Yeah, it was kind of a thing. Um, which, speaking of women, let's let's talk a little bit about the women of the 1904 games, because, well, there weren't many of them. Um, of course. In fact... Yeah, uh, probably the only thing that James Sullivan and Cooperton would have found common ground on was their views of women's athletics. The only sport that women were allowed to compete in at the St. Louis Games was archery. There were only six women who competed on September 19th and 20th in archery, five of whom were all members of the Ohio Cincinnati Archers Club. I also got curious about why archery? Why was that the only event women could be in? And it turns out that archery had long been considered an acceptable leisure activity for both men and women to enjoy, especially among the upper classes. So it, it was really kind of a classist thing happening there with its inclusion. The winner was Matilda Lida Scott Howell, who dominated the sport of women's archery during the early 20th century. She won a total of three Olympic gold medals in her career and 17 out of 20 national championships here in the U.S. Her father, Thomas Scott, was also an archer, and he competed at the St. Louis Games. A little father-daughter competing happening there. It's kind of It's pretty kind special. Of cool. Yeah, and here's the thing about Thomas Scott. He was 71 years old at the Games, and he still holds the record as Team USA's oldest Olympian. You think we'll um, ever see that record broken? I don't know. Uh, let's not <laughs> Come, on, Come on, Schuster. <laughs> Schuster, let's go. Yeah. And while basketball was only a demonstration sport, as you just mentioned, I would encourage you, again, to go listen to the American History Tellers season about the St. Louis Games because uh, the host, he actually talks a lot about the participation of the Fort Shaw Indian School Girls basketball team and how they took the World's Fair by storm. Really fascinating story highlighting the resiliency and bravery of this team that was completely made up of Native American teenage girls. Really, really cool story. Um, we're not including it here, though, because it wasn't 
official. Um, but otherwise, that's unfortunately it for women at the St. Louis games. So, yeah, yeah kind of a bummer. But what what you going to do about it at this point? <laughs> yep. Yep. It's okay, ladies. We know our time is coming. Okay. So now we're going to get into some really difficult stuff. Because part of why the St. Louis games are still considered so infamous is because of this thing called Anthropology Days. I know we already gave a parental warning at the front of the episode about discussions of racism, but we're going to give you another one here because it is a real doozy. Now, just like many other venues at the time, the spectators at the 1904 games were segregated. That's that's kind of expected, unfortunately, at this time and point in history. But here is the real kicker, the really ugly stuff. Since the Olympics and World's Fair were paired up together, um, one of the draws for the World's Fair was a human zoo. That's right. A human zoo. It was a display of 1,400 people from different quote-unquote uncivilized tribes, supposedly for average Americans to learn about world cultures. But really, it was just very thinly veiled racism. Okay, we're just going to call it as it is. Um, now, here's the deal. This was not an original idea. Okay, um, human zoos had been a popular feature of the World's Fair since the 1889 French Exposition, and they were so popular because it, it tapped into the racist notion that some cultures were inherently more advanced or more civilized than others. You know, you have to think about this was the time when eugenics was really popular and was considered a branch of science and all that crazy stuff. So, so yeah, so we, you know, America didn't come up with this idea, uh, but we were happy to embrace it <laughs> at the St. Louis World's Fair. So St. Louis was repeating what had been successful at previous World's Fairs that, again, does not make it right by any stretch of the imagination, but does give some context for why it was happening in the first place. Now, because this type of human zoo event had proved popular at other World's Fairs, Sullivan thought he could leverage that popularity to get higher attendance at the Olympic events themselves. So he came up with this idea of Anthropology Days as a way to raise the awareness for the Olympic events. So how did he do this? So the two Anthropology Days were held on August 12th and 13th. Participants in the human zoo were encouraged, so to speak, to try their hand at Olympic sports. Some of these participants were Patagonians from South America, Pygmy people from Africa, Filipinos from Asia, and Sioux people uh, here from the United States, among others. Now, these participants were given little to no instruction on the sports that they were compelled to play in, uh, both the European sports and then also so-called savage-friendly contests like javelin, tree climbing, and mud throwing, okay? Um, with Javelin, Sullivan and other spectators were shocked when many of the participants performed, performed poorly because they had these racist assumptions that 
well, these people all come from spear-wielding cultures. Of course they'll be good at javelin. Uh, so these poor people who were already getting gawked at by tourists every day, now they were also being laughed at for not doing well at activities they had literally never done before and hadn't been taught to do. Uh, some of them didn't understand the rules. There was one story about a group that was competing in a 100-meter dash, and the leaders actually stopped just short of the finish line so they could wait for the others to catch up to them. That's uh, it's sweet, but they got laughed at for not understanding that, hey, you're supposed to cross the line. Uh, there were other participants who realized what was going on, and they were rightly offended at being turned into a spectacle. So they either just refused to participate as an act of defiance, which good for them. And of course, Sullivan just thought that meant they were unintelligent. He didn't understand that they were actually trying to make a statement and uh, that they were choosing not to participate. In fact, Sullivan later said that these displays of their quote-unquote, poor athletic performance, was proof that, quote, the Savage has been a very overrated man from an athletic point of view, unquote. I really don't like this guy, just in case anyone is wondering. Gonna put that out there again. Um, when he heard about Anthropology Days later on, Coubertin wrote that this was an outrageous charade, and noted, quote, it will, of course, lose its appeal when black men, red men, and yellow men learn to run, jump and throw, and leave the white man behind them. So, okay, while his wording is obviously dated and problematic in its own way, I, I think we can at least agree with the sentiment behind his quote, which is simply that at the time, sports was largely a white activity and that the performance was proof only that there was lack of opportunity among these other cultures, not lack of athletic ability. Because we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but two members of the South African team were actually two Swana tribesmen who had been hired for the human zoo, and they decided to participate in the marathon, even though they had never run one before. But they had both served as message runners during the Boer War. So uh, the marathon was not part of the anthropology days, but these, these two guys were part of the human zoo and said, hey, let's go do this thing while we're here. Uh, so anyway, that's anthropology days, just getting it out there. It's ugly. It's terrible. It's awful. Should have never happened. It wasn't right back then. It's not right now. Um, but that's part of why the St. Louis games were, frankly, just a disaster. All right. Before we get into the debacle that was the 1904 marathon, let's talk about some highlights of the games. Uh, yeah, the, the few good things that did happen. So the athletics competition was intended by Sullivan to be the highlight of the entire games and was mostly held in July. And there were some standouts. Um, so this is a guy that he's got a good story. Um, so Ray Uri had been a triple gold medalist in Paris 1900 for the standing jumping events repeated and he repeated his success at St. Louis. He actually had polio as a child. Uh, he got so good at jumping because after he recovered, he was constantly exercising so he could catch up to the other kids and overcome the negative effects of the disease. Hmm. All told, Ray Yuri ended his Olympic career with a whopping 10 gold medals, eight of them across the 1900, 1904, and 1908 games. 
And then two more at the 1906 Intercalated Games. I'll throw in some good stuff, too, actually. <laughs> I've seen this Yay. misreported across multiple sources, but despite the racism, obviously, that happened at the 1904 Games and the lack of opportunity for people of color in America, the St. Louis Games actually gave us our first African-American medalist. Uh, George Pogue won two bronze medals in the 200 and 400-meter hurdles, and then Joseph Stadler won a silver and bronze in the standing high jump and the standing triple jump. Um, and the reason I've seen this uh, misreported is because they didn't win gold. And so a lot of times people kind of forget their stories and they immediately jump to just the first African-American man who won gold, uh, who's uh, John Taylor, who we'll, we'll talk about him when we get there. But uh but I think we need to make sure they get attention, too, because they did medal. <laughs> uh, also, mm -hmm. in track and field, uh, you had James Lightbody, who won steeplechase. He set a world record in the 1,500-meter run. That was another good thing to come out of these games. Um, also, Team USA got its first victory in swimming. Uh, that was not something we had done well in up to this point. And uh, our, our guy here was Charles Daniels. He was a swimmer from the New York Athletic Club. He ended up winning gold in the 220-yard freestyle, silver in the 440 freestyle, and the 100 freestyle. And then he won bronze in the 4x50 freestyle and the 50. So... Five medals. Not bad. Emil Rausch of Germany won three medals in swimming, two gold and one bronze. Also, Frank Kugler of Germany would win four medals, but across different sports. Swimming, <laughs> weightlifting, and tug of war, making him the only <laughs> Olympic athlete to medal in three sports at one single Olympiad. He was also a member of the local St. Louis Southwest Turnbrine Club and became an American citizen in 1913. Archie Hahn, known as the Milwaukee Meteor, set a record in the 200 <laughs> meter uh, that stood for 28 years and was also the gold medal winner in the 100 meters and the 60 meter races. Um, so that's pretty impressive. And to have a race stand for 28 years, that's, that's a long time. Yeah, it's a big deal. In gymnastics, Anton Haida, who had been born in Prague before immigrating to the U.S., won six medals, five of them gold, including the all-around event. That's very impressive. And then we like this guy, George Iser, who was German-born and had also immigrated to the U.S. with his family, won six medals in gymnastics, despite the fact that he had a prosthetic wooden leg. And I'm just going to leave that as a cliffhanger of sorts because we're going to do a short athlete profile episode about him soon. Another historic moment was the participation of Frank Pierce in the marathon. He was of Seneca descent and was the first Native American to represent the U.S. in the Olympics. So yeah, at least a few good things were happening here and there. I really like that mm -hmm. we were seeing so many firsts. And, and you know, of course, many yeah. of these firsts were Americans, um, like the first Native American. Right. <laughs> such, right. um, because we had such a large delegation. So we understand that. Yeah. Um, but it is cool to see these trailblazers um have their names in the record books. Yeah, absolutely. And again, with you know, with a games that is so negative in so many ways, uh, you know, we we have to have some bright spots here and there to recognize that. <laughs> 
um, even when things are really bad, you can still find good in mm-hmm. things. So, uh, but on that note, we're going to get back to some more bad stuff. <laughs> so, yep. uh, let's. So, what you got for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to take a punch at um, talking about a boxing controversy. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, we've got to talk about this controversy in the boxing competition because this was its Olympic debut. There was a major cheating problem when a competitor named James Bollinger decided to enter the event as somebody else. He registered <laughs> as Carol Burton. Why? Well, Carol Burton was a popular local boxer in St. Louis, and he thought that entering as Burton would help him win points from the judges. I mean, going for favoritism, not the worst idea, except for completely (laughs) unethical. Um, He actually succeeded in winning a match before he was found out and promptly disqualified. Okay, what was this guy thinking? Did he think that no one was going to notice that, A, he didn't look like? Carol Burton. I, I mean, he he's choosing to be a guy from that city because the guy was popular. So did he really think no one was going to be like, wait, that's not our popular athlete? And, and then second question, especially since this was boxing, what if the real Burton had shown up at the competition <laughs> and yeah. saw this guy stealing his name? <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to know is where's Burton? in all of this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know it's not like social media where you can quickly look someone up to verify who <laughs> they are on their Facebook or something, but geez, come on. Yeah. There might yeah. be better it, ways to cheat. <laughs> better ways to cheat. There you go. You know, that if I did trailers for, for our episodes, that would be the quote that would be in there. There's <laughs> gotta be better ways to cheat. So, um, Speaking of cheating, we're going to get to that. Uh, we're we're going to talk about some more cheating here in a minute. Now, whether it's a better way to cheat than taking someone's name, I don't know about that. But <laughs> let's take a quick little break, and then we're going to talk about what might be the worst marathon race ever run in the history of the marathon. All right. The marathon. Once again, we're talking about the marathon. So Sullivan wanted the marathon to be the centerpiece of the games. No surprise, that's in line with what the IOC wanted, too. We already know that. But he also wanted to turn it into a science experiment. So, okay, so he and some of the other officials, some of the other trainers that were involved in the planning, they had this really bizarre belief that dehydration could actually improve athletic performance. I totally make sense. I can't. I can't. (laughs) What's crazy is he was an athlete himself, and yet he still had this belief like, hey, I think dehydration might be a good thing. So they decided, these uh, amateur scientists, and and they weren't actually scientists, let's get that out there, uh, but they decided that this would be the perfect opportunity to test this theory. And who would be the test subjects in this grand science experiment? Well, the runners, of course. So for starters, they decided to hold the marathon on August 30th and started at 3 p.m. in the afternoon when it would be a scorching 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 32 Celsius for our metric friends out there. Um, And I know, obviously, we get 
hotter temperatures than that here in Texas. But regardless, 90 degrees is not when you want to run a marathon, period. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, just for context, think about how they moved the Tokyo Marathon because of the heat. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And instead of making sure that there would be plenty of water stations because of them doing it at the hottest time of the day, um, they decided that there would be two. Some sources say that they actually only planned one water station and that the second one was unofficial, that it was just a water tower along the route that some of the runners stopped at. Oh, and the last of these two water stations would be just before the halfway point. Uh, so yeah, so that means the back half of the marathon, when you definitely need water, you got nothing. Okay. Good luck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Another source I found said that the water also wasn't clean. <laughs> so that resulted in cramps and vomiting for some of the runners. Go figure. Um, now, there were 32 men who decided to run the race with no idea of what was about to happen to them. They weren't really in on this experiment. The race was started by David Francis, uh, who we've talked about. He fired the start gun, and the competitors had to run five laps inside of the stadium where they would eventually return to finish a final lap. Okay, so five laps inside so people could see and cheer them, um, except only 14 of the 32 would actually end up finishing. So not, <laughs> not great results. Uh, in fact, the very first runner to drop out did so only a half mile outside the stadium because he started vomiting from the heat. Um, so, you know, not only was the dehydration experiment brutal, but so was the course. Uh, so, yeah, the course ran along unpaved, dusty roads. It included seven very steep hills. So in some sources I found, it even said that most of the athletes had to actually walk these hills because they were just simply too steep for them to be able to effectively run. Uh, the roads had not been closed down, uh, so the runners had to deal with cars, bicycles, horse-drawn wagons, and one of the South African runners, so we, we talked about them a little bit earlier, Lynn Tanyane, he was chased off course a couple of miles by feral dogs that were hanging out on the route, and his compatriot, Jan Masciani ran the entire race barefoot. I repeat, barefoot. Okay. Um, but by the way, those two South African runners who, again, they were part of the human zoo. They just wanted to run the marathon. Despite these difficulties, they still finished ninth and 12th. That's pretty cool, actually. Just the fact that they <laughs> so, finished. The <laughs> fact that they finished. Yes. Um, all right, so many of the trainers and the officials, they decided to actually drive the course with the athletes so that they could observe the race. Obviously, these vehicles kicked up a ton of dust and particles into the air and right into the faces of the athletes. Not to be gross, and if, you know, things, icky things kind of uh, bother you, you might want to skip forward about 30 seconds, but... One of the runners, William Garcia, swallowed so much dust that he collapsed, coughing up blood because his stomach had ruptured. So, yeah, he uh, vomited blood. He passed out. He probably would have died if it hadn't been for the fact that a passerby found him and saw that he was in distress and rushed him off to the hospital for treatment. So, thankfully, <laughs> Garcia survived, but barely. 
Um, I found a really great video that details the particulars of the race, and I've actually added it to our YouTube channel playlist for the 1904 games, um, and I'll include it in the show notes. Uh, it does have some bad language in it, just letting you know, but it's a really detailed and funny analysis of the race from beginning to end. So you can go check that out later. Uh, Runner's World also has a really great article uh, detailing everything about this marathon, and I'll link that as well. We're going to talk for a second about this guy named Felix Carvajal. So Carvajal was a Cuban mailman. Uh, he was born in San Antonio de los Baños, living in poverty pretty much his entire life. Uh, he performed long-distance walking and running exhibitions as a side hustle to his postal work. In fact, during the Spanish-American War, Felix had once crossed the entire length of Cuba. Kind of like a Cuban forced gump. Life is like a box of Cuban cigars, I guess. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, when he found out about the Olympic Games coming to the Western Hemisphere... He raised the money to be able to go to St. Louis for the marathon. Uh, because of his exploits, he had become semi-famous in Cuba. And so he was able to raise just enough to get him to the U.S. He arrived in America in New Orleans and decided he would try to make a quick buck at the local casino, promptly losing all of his remaining money. He ended up having to walk and hitchhike the rest of the way to St. Louis from New Orleans, where some sources report that he showed up just an hour before the start of the marathon. Now, our buddy Felix here. I love this guy. Uh, he, he ran in the only clothes that he had with him. Heavy boots, full trousers, and a long shirt that some people said looked more like a night shirt. <laughs> Oh, and a beret. So he had a little bit of course. style. Um, yeah. So um, the trousers did get changed because uh, uh, an American athlete noticed that and helped him cut his trousers into shorts. And off he went. Uh, but that literally happened minutes before the race started. That The American was like, hey, bro, you want some help with those pants? It's, it's pretty hot out here. And Felix was like, yeah, yeah, sure. If you got some scissors. So along the route... Felix stopped to chat with locals, including asking one for a peach. When they told him no, he took it anyway and ran off. Then he, <laughs> he stopped at an apple orchard to pick a few apples. You know, just, just living his life, man. Just enjoying the scenery. Turned out that they were rotten apples, and so he had stomach cramps, and he stopped to take a nap. Despite all of this, he would still finish the race in good spirits, and in fourth place. I don't understand. <laughs> I do not understand this guy. <laughs> this guy, I mean, I want I want to I want to be friends with him. I want to sit down and have a beer with this guy. I mean, he Where's the movie like about race. this guy's life? Yeah, just seriously, his it, journey to get there. My goodness. Yeah. Well, and it didn't stop there, Sarah. So, he ended up being such a hit in St. Louis, that they crowned him as the Clown King. Like, he just brought everyone's spirits up, was just super charming. So he hung out there in St. Louis for the next year. I mean, he, he lost all his money at that casino, so I guess he didn't have a way to get home. Uh, so he stayed there for the next year, training with the Missouri Athletic Club. He actually got third in the first All-Western Marathon the very next year. And then after that, he was finally able to return to Cuba. and. 
they loved him so much, they decided to send him as their representative to compete in the marathon in Athens at the 1906 Intercalated Games. So he, he left with his people's blessing, but he disappeared along the way, and there was no word from him, no messages, no one had seen him. He never arrived to Athens. And so just like would happen a lot of times back then when people would travel and you couldn't hear from them, they thought he probably died and even printed up an obituary for him in the news. And then one day he inexplicably <laughs> showed back up in Havana on a steamer ship. <laughs> just like, hey guys, what's up? What's been going on? What'd I miss? <laughs> so do we know what he was doing? No, no, I couldn't find, like, he just, he was enjoying Europe, apparently, you know, probably going through some more apple orchards and uh -huh. whatnot. So, and yeah, we have no idea what he was doing. Um, but the Cuban people are obviously very forgiving. They didn't seem to mind the fact that he didn't actually show up at the games in Athens. So he continued to enjoy a career as a professional long distance runner after that. And he actually ended up living to the age of 73 and passed away on January 27th, 1949. So uh, he may have gotten fourth place, but a legend. That's all I have to say. I mean, <laughs> a legend. Without the nap, would he have won? I, th I think he would have because the reports I read said that when he came into the stadium, he looked fine. While everyone else was stumbling and falling down and all these things. Now, granted, he'd had a good nap. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, they said, like, he was in good spirits and came into the stadium and was ready to party, basically. So, yeah, I think he could have potentially won. But, you know, it's thought that he probably kind of had to take a nap. Like, he may have had some issues going on with yeah. his belly, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to get too detailed. So, yeah. Um, yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, he... He may not have had a choice at that point. He needed to sleep some things off. But the fact that he still finished while people were in the stadium and waiting for others to finish, like, it's insane. Anyway, mm -hmm. so that's uh, that's Felix Carvajal. But I don't see how you can talk about these games without talking about him. So back to... <laughs> yeah, we back got... Back to cheating. We yeah. got another guy okay. to talk about. Fred Lors of the U.S., Yes, he was one of ours. Uh, so he dropped out of the race around mile nine due to cramps and decided to hitch a ride back to the stadium. Okay, so he jumps in a car. Uh, but, you know, get this. Not only was the course tough for runners to finish, uh, apparently it was tough for cars, too, because the car he was in broke down 10 miles later down the course. So deciding that he had caught his breath and his cramps had cleared up and he felt pretty good. Lors decided to run the rest of the way to the stadium. Uh, so he actually, you know, just streaked past all of the other runners and went into the stadium, ran onto the track, and of course the crowd assumed him to be the winner. And do you think he corrected the cheering crowd? Absolutely um, not. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> yeah. He... Um, yeah, he accepted their praise, and uh, Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of good old Teddy, um, even placed a victor's crown on his head. Um, that was until a spectator ran up and announced that he had seen Lors riding in a car. So, 
So yeah, so Lors was promptly disqualified, and he claimed at first that it was just a good-natured joke. The IOC didn't think it was funny. They banned him from ever competing in the Olympics again. And he later on would change his story and say he was suffering of temporary insanity. Sure, Fred. Sure. Yeah, still disqualified. So who won the marathon? Because honestly, there were no winners here. Well, the victor ended up being American Thomas Hicks, whose trainers had followed along with him on the course. While he was not drinking any water, you know what he was drinking along the way? Brandy. So um, he was literally drinking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was having some fun. So around the 20-mile mark, he was faltering. So his trainers decided to give him a mixture of brandy, egg whites, and strychnine. What's that, you ask? Strychnine is a controlled substance and at the time was a common ingredient in rat poison, but it could also be mm. used in small doses as a stimulant. So this is our very first case of doping in the Olympics. While it did appear to work, he started to falter again just three miles out from the stadium. And so what do you think his trainers did? They gave him another dose. At this point, between the dehydration and the strychnine mix, Hicks started to hallucinate. Arriving in the stadium, he was barely moving. Some reports say he kept collapsing and his trainers kept picking him up to urge him forward. In fact, pretty much every source agrees that his trainers actually carried him over the finish line while he was just shuffling his feet as if he was running. Obviously, this would have been a disqualification now, but honestly, after what he had to put up with, I'm kind of okay with him having the gold medal. Um, yeah, because I'll lot. interject here real quick. A lot of sources I read, he was not on board with this whole mixture thing. It was something they were forcing upon him. At least that's what it sounds like. So we, we don't want to put too much of the blame on him because it doesn't sound like he was really a fan of that idea. It's just... You trust your trainers, right? They tell you to drink something and it'll help you. You drink it. That's mm -hmm. just, you know, that's sometimes the problem with just blindly following orders. <laughs> yep. Even now in 2022. Yep. Obviously, he was in need of medical attention and was too worn down to even stand to receive his gold medal. With his time of three hours, 28 minutes and 53 seconds, it was the slowest winning marathon time in any modern Olympiad. After this crazy debacle, James Sullivan tried to distance himself from things, acting like it was <laughs> not all his idea. Naturally, he said that he thought the marathon should be banned, that he was opposed to it, that it was torture, that the outcome was proof it would probably get cut from the Olympic program in 1908. He said, quote, it is indefensible on any ground, but historic. <laughs> I just can't with this guy. Yeah, I, I can't either. Like, the whole thing was his idea, like, hey, let's do this science experiment, guys. And then when it totally went south and, again, nearly resulted in multiple people almost dying, let, let's be real here, then he was like, ooh, that wasn't a great idea, but it was my idea. Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll pretend it was never my idea. That'll work. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah. And then yeah. I'm going to tell people it's going to get cut from the next Olympics. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, like, oh, like, oh, it's it's got to go. Like, this is terrible. Like, we should not be doing this to people. It's like, no, you did this to people, James. Like, th- you did this because <laughs> we haven't had these problems, you know, <laughs> at the two previous <laughs> Olympic marathons. So, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the <laughs> the legacy <laughs> of these games. Yeah, so what is the legacy of these games uh, <laughs> besides the fact that they were awful? Well, for starters, because of the lack of foreign participation and the overrepresentation of American athletes, Team USA would win the largest medal haul of all modern Olympiads. There are different numbers out there. But 231 to 244 medals is what I've seen. Um, so a lot. Germany yeah. in second place had a total of 14 or 15 medals. <laughs> and then Canada with six. While attendance records were not kept super reliably, it does appear that there was an increase of interest in the events among the public and that a fair number of visitors to the World's Fair also checked out some of the Olympic competitions. So the games did succeed in popularizing the Olympics with more of the American public beyond the athletes, which would be crucial for generating interest in sending the next team to London in 1908. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Sullivan, we need to kind of talk a little bit about what happened with him as part of this legacy. So he became the president of the AAU in 1906 to 1909, but he continued to work for the organization in some capacity after that. So he was always a part of that organization. And the AAU continued to work with the IOC closely until the early 70s. And then the organization fell by the wayside as other sports federations either took its place. Um, And then, of course, in 1986, the IOC voted to allow professionals in the Olympics anyway. So Sullivan continued to have an influence on Team USA, though. In fact, he was the one who barred U.S. women from being able to go compete in the 1912 Stockholm Games. So once again, real upstanding guy. Um, He was injured in a train wreck in 1911, which is fitting since the St. Louis games were a train wreck. And then on September 16th, um, not 2014, that's hilarious, 1914, (laughs) I'm going to leave that in. I'm not even cutting that mistake out because it's funny. Um, (laughs) So yeah, September 16th, 1914, he needed to have a surgery for an intestinal issue. I don't know if that was related to the train wreck or not, uh, but the complications led to him passing away at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York at the age of 52. So that's where his story ends. But overall, his games, the St. Louis games, they really are a stain on America's sports history and history history, too. But if anything, like you were just saying, it did at least raise, you know, some more American interest in the games. Obviously, the press talked about that drama of the host cities. So, you know, it it did elevate the awareness, at least. Mm -hmm. And I think it did also add fuel to the fire for the IOC to pick up the pieces and make sure that the next games would go better than this. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, again, silver linings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's 2022. And I'm so sorry, Chicago, that you still have not had the Olympics. 
you know, I think some hard lessons were learned from the St. Louis games. Uh, thankfully, the U.S. has had the chance to redeem itself from those games by hosting seven other times. And I think we're both looking forward to the Los Angeles games coming in 2028, though my oldest son keeps asking me if we can go to Paris in 2024. We'll see, buddy. I don't know yet. <laughs> but, Let's go. Uh, we're not... But we're not going to leave St. Louis quite yet because, as you kind of already teed it up in our next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about George Iser. But if you enjoyed this episode, and we really hope you did, then go leave us a short review and we'll read it as long as there's not a copious amount of profanity. But until then, Odyssey you later. The Games Odyssey podcast is a production of Wardrobe Media LLC. This episode was written, hosted, produced, and edited by Jonathan Jordan and co-hosted by Sarah Patton. Show notes, including research sources and transcripts, can be found on our website, gamesodyssey.com. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Games Odyssey podcast is strictly for informational, commentary, and educational purposes. The Games Odyssey podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC and is not sponsored, endorsed, or officially affiliated with the USOPC or the International Olympic Committee or International Paralympic Committee. The content of Games Odyssey podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content features in the Games Odyssey podcast is accurate.